Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome the co-founder and CEO of Open Farm, Isaac Langlaben, to discuss the fascinating world of the global pet food industry. Isaac shares his journey initially working in consulting and private equity and how he ended up helping his partner, Jacqueline, with their first pet business, Canda Pooch, in the evenings, and why he decided to eventually leave the world of finance and join Jacqueline in launching a sustainable pet food business. Next, we dive into the early days of Open Farm and how the company survived the first few years when no investors would believe in them. We finally understand how the company delivered an impressive 85% year-over-year growth since its inception and how it became the seventh-ranked pet food brand in North America. Isaac and I discuss Open Farm's commitment to a sustainable brand and how the company was able to secure over $140 million in capital from General Atlantic and others. Lastly, we get Isaac to share his views on the Canadian entrepreneurial ecosystem and why our founders need to think bigger and go more global when it comes to building enduring companies. But before we jump into this week's interview, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Thanks for joining us back in the tank today, John. Great, great to see you, Matt. Vancouver-based Photonic emerged from stealth as the third entrant in the global race for quantum computing. You know the quantum space well with your investments in Xanadu. They emerged with 140 million US in funding and unveiling a partnership with Microsoft. You know, their plans are to build this quantum computer using silicon chips that are networked with, you know, with light and are it's a relatively new approach, but you know quantum better than I do and probably most of our audience does. So would love to understand what you think they're bringing to the table here and if you think they're going to you know, make a difference and what we've seen is taking a lot longer in quantum to hit main stage. The folks behind the two founders, they are exceptional, uh, uh, incredibly talented folks. You, know, you and I have discussed my one and only investment in quantum was, was Xanadu. When I was at Omer's, it was the first check in a largely... Uh, brought in through Ken Nickerson. And the one advantage that Xanadu and now Photonics has is I had seen all of the other ones and I just could not make an investment because I didn't understand how would you be able to miniaturize the chipsets for PC and other everyday devices when you had to cool it to basically zero degrees Kelvin. And it was so complex. And then Ken and I would discuss this for six years. And then Ken said, I found your answer performing quantum at room temperature. And I said, how is that possible? And it's through quantum photonics. And Canada has a very long history in the photonic space through the telecom side when the whole you know, fiber optic craze hit in the, in the mid to late 1990s. So this is actually a Canadian strength. And what it really is, is using the bending of light in order to enable the, the qubits to remain stable. So it is a fascinating approach to it. And it's one that makes more sense from a commercialization perspective. The challenge in all of these, those is really the commercialization. And there's, again, I'm not a, a an expert in the space, but is it really performing a quantum computation or is it just a, another faster computer? And the real key of this will be is you have to get to a certain level of problem sets with so many multivariables in order for this to be more advantageous to what we currently have. But this is a game-changing space and one that, frankly, Canada has some fantastic asset. So thumbs up to, to see where this goes. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, coming out of stealth with 120 people is not really coming out of stealth, I'd say. But this one feels much closer to commercialization with access to Microsoft's Azure Cloud Computing Network. You know, uh, Microsoft's vice president of Advanced Quantum said, unlike other commercial agreements that they have with other quantum makers, Photonics is a co-innovation collaboration to promote quantum computing. And they will offer Photonic as a preferred hardware provider for customers doing computational chemistry and material science discovery. So it feels like it's already coming out of the gates closer to commercial innovation and partnership. But but let me just say, just like you're seeing in the AI space, these large players, they make multi-optional bets. Okay, let's speak about that. (laughs) Google has been an investor, I think, and somebody will correct me perhaps, in every single quantum opportunity. You've got enough capital, place all of your chips, 
Microsoft, the big investor in OpenAI, who did they invest in recently on a, a, an LLM, another one that he did? And everybody's going, what are you doing? I thought you made your bed with OpenAI. It's like, hey, you know, not so fast here, J- just in case if we're wrong. Absolutely. Speaking of Microsoft and confusing, in case you were confused before, a great tweet by uh, Matt Turk from FirstMark said, Microsoft is the biggest investor in OpenAI, but also a competitor to OpenAI, an investor in a competitor chatbot Inflection AI, and Microsoft is also the key partner, but also a competitor to Databricks with Azure AI. So I just hope that clarifies everything. Correct. But you know what? When you have that amount of capital, why wouldn't you like this is classic innovators dilemma strategy. Do not commit, lay down your optionality bets as long as you can. And once you know what the direction is, then you commit. Beautiful strategy. If I was in Microsoft, Satya is the king right now, and uh, he's doing it the same way that I would do this. So man, he's a uh, He's an amazing guy. It is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, who do you think did this the best before Satya took over Microsoft? Who do you think made the best multi-bet strategy to hedge themselves across all innovations? Actually, I'd be curious what your answer is. Inkitel. Yeah, that's probably it. But the problem is they weren't bet they weren't betting to uh, to win financially. No, but but Inkitel, as people know, is the is the is the venture arm of the CIA. They place all out optionality bets to either take out potential winners so that it doesn't get into the wrong hands. But it was, it's a little bit like that with Microsoft in a, in a way, right? Because sometimes you make these bets to kill competition, right? And that's what uh, people watch. Out. Do you have one in mind? Well, I guess like Google Ventures was doing this, but on a smaller scale. Yeah. And they weren't doing it in like the size that Microsoft is doing it now, but also the markets have changed over the last 10, yeah. 20 years. I was going to say Google as well, but they haven't done it this clearly in my view as Microsoft uh, has. So yeah, that's a great question. I have to think about that one. Yeah. Speaking of big bets, I mean, yesterday, uh, you know, we saw the announcement of OpenAI's dev day and there was a lot to be announced. I don't know about you, but if I was an early stage pure AI investor, I'd be scared shitless right now because they just destroyed pretty much everything consumer AI, everything enterprise AI, and all things AI for developers. Oh, and also they announced an app store. So you can now create your own custom versions of ChatGPT that combine instructions, extra knowledge, and any combination of skills. And OpenAI is basically letting anyone create their own version of ChatGPT. So what did you think about this? I, I was, a, you know, I'm astonished on how quickly they're productizing so many areas. Now, it's also could be problematic if they can pull it off. Massive kudos, but it's usually very, very difficult to go after a consumer and enterprise space at the exact same time. What my sense is, if you're in the consumer space, man, I'm not sure I'd be an investor from that perspective. And based on what my conversations with other LLM players, they basically have said, you know what, we're not going to touch that consumer space. It's also quite fickle as well, too. They're going to stay in the B2B space. But just as you mentioned, ChatBT is clearly trying to hit that space as well. So we'll see what I think the more interesting will be in the enterprise space, because who's going to win out on that battle? But that app store... That is, if people remember, when people talk about the iPhone versus the BlackBerry, it had nothing to do with the device, really. It had nothing. Yeah, it was the App Store. It was the App Store they got out innovated because it enabled them to scale up at a much faster rate and with higher margins by capturing first the consumer, remember the words of consumerization of IT? They hit the consumer side first and then hit the enterprise. Is OpenAI following this exact same model? My thoughts on this, if you're you know, going to say as an early stage investor, if you're going to invest in consumer AI tools or wrappers that are being called right now, you just can't assume that they need tens of millions of dollars to get to a profitable or successful exit. Maybe a million dollars or so to build a 
lifestyle business or a business that can do you know, 10 million of ARR a year or something like that, those could come out. But you have to right-size the capital that goes into these businesses, knowing that you're capped on the upside because they're going to get taken out by some of the bigger ones or taken advantage of. Enterprise, though, you're probably right. There's still venture-backable companies that are going to come out of that because they need to be uh, model agnostic, you know, enterprise compliant, security compliant, a lot of those things that maybe OpenAI is not going to be the best at. Uh, and also people don't want to be only tied to the OpenAI models. But I mean, the cost right now for some of our companies to take advantage of GPT-4 Turbo is really cheap and it's going to lower their prices even more. So I'm very excited to see what that does. But you know what other company is trying to skill, compete with ChatGPT? The founder of OpenAI, co-founder, I guess, Elon Musk, with his new AI startup XAI to create his own version to uh, compete with ChatGPT. So you know, I don't know what you think about this, but he tweeted last week, you know, teasing the AI system XAI that they've been developing called Grok, I think is the way you pronounce it. What do you think about this? And what do you think the possibilities of this, you know, drawing on the the knowledge that they obviously have at X, you know, what is this going to do for ChatGPT as a competitor or nothing? The big question for me is going to be the closed AI or the closed LLM systems versus the open source what if through this they blow wide open the open source, which I think was it? It's it's Facebook, right? it's Meta. That's I guess Llama is focused on the open Llama. source. Meta is Llama, yeah, too, Llama, yeah. right? It will be interesting because if it becomes open source, and you know, is this going to be more of a Linux sort of situation? Does that actually undermine everything that Microsoft was trying to do with OpenAI? I think it's Elon trying to still keep his hat in the ring. You know, I think he's got a lot of other bigger problems to solve at X that this feels like a little bit of a hand wavy in my opinion. I don't know about you, but I just, I would rather fix the foundation of the house than maybe trying to, you know, sell a feature that may not actually develop into something really valuable for users right now. While you've got the whole world burning apart, you'll buy what's happening on platforms like X uh, or TikTok, but we'll save that for another chat. You know, one thing I got to ask you, have you seen this new Humane AI pin that was released? The square device that goes on your uh, chest. It's a camera and a microphone and a, a motion sensor. It basically collects data from all around you, uses a Snapdragon processor and is voice controlled. And if you stick your hand out, you can actually see a little bit of a screen that you know, gets basically imprinted on your hand and you can use your hand as gestures. Very Star trek it, it is very Star trek Have you seen the video of this? I have not. No. It's wild. So they came out and they, they're releasing this in about a, a week or two. It's using a T-Mobile uh, network, wireless network. It's trying to basically remove screen time from, so there's no screen, no screen time, but it is tethered to a smartphone and a uh, smartphone iOS app. Uh, but it's a pin that goes on your chest and you can talk to it. It can play v- music. It can use a little camera to display images and directions and stuff and the time and your calendar on your hand that you stick out in front of you and use your hand as a screen. It's wild. I'm just trying to understand though, but what's the problem that it's trying to solve though? That's that's the greatest question. There is no problem. The problem is they're trying to get rid of the screen and they're also trying to leverage the power of AI to think and interpret signals and noise and motion from around you without you having to control it with a screen and an app. I guess the problem they're saying is everyone's on their phones trying to get information out of the phone and to then use it in the real world. Whereas this can interpret the real world around you and process it using a very powerful AI chip based inside of it to actually do things before you even maybe ask for them or slight gestures to create. It's crazy, but it just shows how close or fast this technology is moving. Yeah, it sounds very gimmicky because I, I would say if you were to have your uh, your phone in your pocket and you have your earbuds on and it's ta- serious talking back to you and saying, well, what's what is really the difference? The other, you know, other question that I'll have is again, I haven't seen it. I'm anxious to take a look at that now, but is the whole security and privacy aspect of when it's an always on world like that. So they have ter- they have that trust feature built in. Is actually one of the things in the video they show is they call it the trust light. So when the light is on, that means it's recording. And when the light is off, it's not recording. But again, I agree with you. Everyone's got their phones. You know, everything in the world right now is fully being recorded, but it is very crazy. The complexity of what went into this product, a small pin with a battery pack on behind it. You've got 
software, AI, hardware, cell connectivity, and a UI UX, you know, built into one small little device. It is impressive from a technological feat, but from an application standpoint, who knows? Until next time, John, thanks for joining us in the tank today. Great. Thanks, Matt. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Isaac Langlaben from OpenFarm. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Isaac. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. You know, Isaac, I've been waiting a long time to have you on the podcast and probably almost two years now since we reconnected, but I've been following your story alongside Jacqueline's, your partner, since we went to high school together almost 20 years ago. But for the rest of our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your story, it'll be great if you can give our audience a brief background on yourself, where you grew up, and what the early parts of your career path entailed. It's funny how far you and Jack go back, and it's been great reconnecting. But yeah, so for me, I grew up in Montreal, born and, and raised there, and um, yeah, went to school, went to law school there, and then finally moved to Toronto in 09, and actually met Jack, uh, Jacqueline in 09, and um, I had a job lined up in New York, but with the global financial crisis, that kind of got screwed up, and left in Toronto, met Jack, and the rest is history. But yeah, so I started my, in terms of career, I started my career um, in corporate law, brief stint, you could call it, but for me, I really, I bounced around. I did corporate law, I did management and consulting, um, did private equity. You know, for me, it was always just about learning, working with great people. Like each of those jobs, I took a pay cut to get, um, but just got a ton of great exposure and, and great mentors along the way and um, all kind of prepped me in some way for, for starting my own business. So I probably had two to three year shelf life in any, any job before I got kind of restless and doing what I do now. It's fun. Like every year is different. Every quarter is different new challenges. So I think they kind of set me up well for, for what I'm doing now. Yeah. So you talk about your early career, you were consulting at BCG and then private equity at Clarevest. You know, what were those roles like, you know, any transactions that really stuck out for you or customer relationships at BCG, you know, and what eventually just decided you had to join Jacqueline on her journey to revolutionize the pet industry? You know, when I got to Clarevest, I think I had a great, I'd had some great experiences, but Clarevest really gave me amazing exposure to just like incredible entrepreneurs, like Clarevest is a, it's a growth equity firm. Like most of the deals they do are minority deals with owner operators. And so, you know, the main things I learned there was like, one, knowing how to cold call. Like I had never had to do that in any job. And all of a sudden my job was to, you know, find great companies and try to convince these people to talk to us and show them how we could add value, you know, capital, but also value um, by becoming their partners spending time with those guys, you know, I'm talking about the entrepreneurs we, we were talking to or, or eventually partnered with, you know, it was super inspiring for me. And, and then the third thing was like understanding a balance sheet, you know, like I did my BCom, like I, I kind of knew my way around PNL for my other experiences, but like, you know, understanding the full balance sheet, understanding how value is created. So I, I learned a ton there in that way. Consulting on it, you know, the, the most most direct link to what I'm doing now in terms of open farm and and making food for for dogs and cats definitely was from from BCG, where you know my three years there, I really worked um, in the food space. So with big CPGs making food like in the US and Canada, and just got you know a ton of exposure in manufacturing, supply chain, M and A, sales and marketing end of it, and yeah, you know, just really got a passion for physical products, how things are made, and. Um, you know, kind of seeing a product through from an idea to like actually being able to hold it in your hands or see it on the shelf, you know, that really got me excited. And, um, you know, Jack had already started a business in the pet industry and I think it opened our eyes to like, whoa, this is a huge industry. It's a lot of fun. There's a ton of opportunity. Really, we just kept seeing new opportunities and food, food was one of them. It was like that two to three year shelf life in your head was always like, what's the next idea? But when you realize that how big the pet industry was, there was just new ideas that you could do within the, you know, the, the overarching business of what you guys were obviously building. But it's also interesting to hear that you connected, you know, cold calling and sales in the private equity world at Clarevest, which a lot of people don't think about because they think, oh, private equity, they just like get deals fed to them. It's not that way, actually. It is a lot of, you know, smiling and dialing. And then at BCG, you got to see like the biggest companies with the biggest problems to solve that still were not being solved, right? Yeah, hundred hundred percent. And that, like that's you know, I think for us, for Jack and I, when we talk about the pet industry, it's really always been about it's the same consumer. They're just buying products for their pet instead of for themselves or for other members of their family, right? And like the last since we've gotten into the industry, obviously pets are are so much a part of the family now, but that that hasn't you know that's that's been evolving over the years, and so like. 
all of our businesses really have been about how are we closing that gap between what's available for pet parents and what's available for just like overall consumers. And you know, Open Farm for us was a pretty personal one because we were already becoming so much more mindful of like the way we ate. Jacqueline was a vegetarian. Like we were becoming, you know, we were definitely focused much more on nutrition, where our food was coming from personally. And when it came to our pets, you know, we would go to the, to the pet store and ask for, for products that kind of shared those values or whether it was better nutrition or understanding, you know, what was actually going into the bag. And they kind of looked like at us, like we were crazy, you know, that was an opportunity where we had, you know, I had that experience in food. We had that passion ourselves. It was something we were looking for, for our own pets. We've been able over 10 years to close that gap. <laughs> I'd say at the beginning, we definitely thought we knew a lot more than we did about it. But um, to your point, it's a great industry. It's huge. You know, pet food's a $50 billion plus industry just in North America. So we saw, we saw this a huge opportunity to kind of transform how people are feeding their pets, you know, and while, while having like a really positive impact in terms of sustainability and welfare in food, you know, how agriculture is done in our country and in the U.S. And so it's been a fun ride. Yeah. I mean, look, Open Forest celebrated its 10-year milestone or will be, you know, this year coming. But let's go back a little bit just so our audience understands like the real origins of of Jacqueline's uh, creation of Canada Pooch, where you were obviously an investor, an advisor. You know, can you tell us a brief story on how that got started and turned into like a cult phenomenon among pet owners in Canada and the U.S.? And then obviously you speak about how it transitioned to your eyes of like the food actually going into our pets and not the coats they were wearing. I say I, I was an advisor. I'd say I worked the night shift at Canada Pooch for a few years. That was how I got in, involved. But um, yeah, so ja- Jacqueline, you know, she was a CPA. The day, the day she got her CPA designation, I think she quit her job in accounting. And she had kind of a six, seven month gap before she was starting law school. She had applied and gotten in. And instead of traveling the world, I guess she decided, hey, I'll start business. And once I start school, it will be like a side hustle and I'll keep it going. She's always had a love for pets. Yeah, you know, we had three and we have two dogs now. But at our peak, we had three. Like, so we're, we're huge animal lovers, obviously. We had some friends in the pet industry, some, fa- some family friends, and they took her to a trade show. She got, she came back with this idea for Canada Pooch, which was again, like, all the, there's all this pet crap out there, you know, cheap stuff, like low quality. Um, and at the same time, you're seeing higher quality accessories, apparel, like that we're buying for ourselves. And so how do you close that gap? And so she came up with an idea to create a much more humanized, high quality, highly functional line of accessories and apparel. And, you know, by the time that six months was up, she had the biggest pet distributor in Canada. She had the biggest uh, pet retailer in Canada that had submitted POs. She had samples. She had a factory in China. She had, you know, containers on the water bringing uh, product over here. Awesome entrepreneurial story, like how she got those first samples and first production run made in four or five months and then signed up these big customers was, you know, just incredible. And so she skipped the first 45 days of law school before she finally admitted that she couldn't do it and and uh, and quit and, and took on the business full time. And went all in on Canada Pooch. And went, went all in on it. And I mean, it was, that's a business that was fully bootstrapped, you know, from month one, it was it was profitable. She was able to get great payment terms from her customers, and was able to kind of spin that up. And um, yeah, we put our life savings into it for the at that time, which was not a ton of money. And yeah, that, so that got us into the industry, right? I think you know we didn't we kind of stumbled into it based on a passion for for pets and seeing some white space and opportunity. And I think once we were in it, we realized like this is a huge industry. It has amazing trends. Like pets are. We're crazy pet people, but there are more and more of us every day who are treating pets like a member of the family. You know, like I said, I think that how did that roll into Open Farm? Really, it was just seeing we saw these opportunities everywhere. So Dig is the third pet company we started with is the same. That's more around containment. Like it's amazing. That's really a hardware company. It's like amazing um, crates, carriers. Um, so fully different category, but the exact same trend of like, okay, you have all these crappy kind of low-cost commoditized products coming over from overseas that are like not really functional in some ways they're you know they're dangerous and meanwhile we have thousand dollar up a baby strollers like how do we convert how do we bring those two things together where this is something that's in your living room like you don't want it to look like crap 
Well, I mean, look, I'm going through the same thing right now with like a newborns and, you know, same with you with young kids and also pet owner myself. My dog Jones just celebrated his sixth birthday, golden retriever. So like we are in the exact same mindset, but you were like, people are treating their pets better than they treat their kids sometimes, <laughs> but we don't have the same products to service them or feed them. So, I mean, you guys had three, you have had three hits between Canada Pooch, Diggs, and now Open Farm. Why was there so much green space, in your opinion, in such a heavily funded and controlled industry from like conglomerates? Because so, like in the last 10 to 15 years, so much more capital has come into pet, right? And so I think with Canada Pooch, it was still early, pretty early days. That, that gap is like definitely more narrow today than it was when we started. Open Farm was in a pretty competitive industry. I mean, you guys are number seven brand in North America you know, for, 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 uh, open farm, you know, that's a hard thing to do for a startup. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. I think, you know, the food space especially is like hyper competitive, right? It's the biggest part of our industry. There are hundreds of brands, but at the same time you have the biggest CPG companies in the world that have like massive presence in the industry. You know, I think for us, I guess the consistent thread across the businesses and definitely with open farm is like, it's always been about how do you stand apart and then how do you stay really focused and like just have a lot of belief in that differentiation and that consumers are going to, are going to value it. And so, you know, in the case of open farm, I think, like I was saying back in 2013, 2014, when we kind of, when we really started and then launched the brand, most of the people we pitched thought we were crazy. Like we were kind of pitching at that time. It's like, Hey, this is whole foods for your dog. It was still very early in the better for you movement, even for, for people, for us. But we were just obsessed with that, mission and we did a lot of things differently in our supply chain that were you know made our lives more difficult whether it was finding ways to make our packaging recyclable or finding farms that have never worked with pet food companies right or getting our supplier our our co-manufacturers to you know partner with us on like our traceability programs and i think doing that when you have zero revenue is hard because you're kind of convincing people to you got to find people who, who will share your vision on that and so I think in a lot of ways, it's like you need to really believe that consumers value that and that you're going to be able to build a business around it. And yeah, we were just obsessed with that. And, and I think and that helped us differentiate, really stand apart and like fast forward to now. It's like natural foods, better for you products are everywhere. Like Walmart and, whole, and Costco sell more organic food than, than Whole Foods does, right? And so I think that persistence early on and and just focusing on doing something different kind of let us carve out this this place for ourselves in the industry. That's amazing. I mean, you've seen consistent 85% year over year growth since 2015. Maybe you could elaborate on Open Farms like commitment to regenerative agriculture and innovative solutions and you were talking about how you've gone up the supply chain to educate them and say, "Look, this is going to be better for you and for our customers and we're all going to win." How was that education process handled? How difficult was it early on? Like you said, or like I was saying, early on, it's it's hard on all sides, right? Because you when you're doing something different, because you're starting with zero revenue and in, in, in business that you know, in a lot of conversations, it starts you just with less credibility than than the next guy, right? And, and less less volume to throw around for better or for worse. And so, you know, for us, we've always like business is partnerships to us, and we view that like definitely on the customer end, but just as much on the supplier end. Sure, for us, we had a vision, and it's about how do you how do you communicate that to people and get them excited about it. I think it's also about showing them why it's also beneficial to their businesses, you know, and how we could how we could fit. And so, you know, on the supply chain front, yeah, we play I think a really important role for a lot of our suppliers, where you know they're selling their ribeye to retail. But then other cuts of that of that animal, like they're looking for, they're basically selling it to conventional to the conventional meat industry, call it right. And like we've been able to plug in there and you know show them, hey, we could come in, we could pay a premium because we have customers who will pay a premium on the other end. Um, so we're able to plug into the supply chain and and add value to their business as well. Same with our co-manufacturers, you know. Like I think for them, obviously. They want customers who are growing or having success in the market. And like, you know, we ask a lot of them and, and we've built great partnerships where I think they see that by partnering with us to, you know, 
deliver on the promises we make to consumers, they're able to one, like build capabilities that they could then sell to other competitors of ours. But also, you know, they're helping us be successful and we obviously are able to send them a lot more volume. So, you know, now it's a lot easier for us to have those conversations because we have scale where we could go in and say, hey, like, here's our volume, like, let's find cool ways to partner together and, and keep raising the standard. But early days, it was definitely a lot of building those relationships and partnerships from a position of like selling a dream more than like the reality of what we were doing. So, so were you going to tr- non uh, pet food or co-packing suppliers originally and telling them, Hey, this off cut that you're putting into like canned foods or like, you know, stock soup or whatever, you could also sell to us. We'll pay a premium for it. And they're like, we never even thought this market was open for this, you know, off the cut uh, stuff. Is that how it worked? Yeah, in many cases, yeah. I mean, we were able to find, exactly. And then, you know, even on the co-manufacturing front, you know, we've had, you know, products where the world's changed a lot, but 10 years ago, a lot of people just didn't want to be associated with with pet food. Now you have a huge range of human-grade pet foods, honestly, pet foods that are more expensive than a lot of stuff you'd find in the canned aisle or or the frozen aisle of of your grocery store. But, But yeah, no, I think what we did, you know, like I said, I think it made our lives a lot harder. It probably makes, you know, I think it also makes it harder for others to kind of replicate and costly for, for others to replicate, but it, you know, it took a lot of, of effort and it took a lot, you know, don't want to, it, it was us, but it's also, we were able to find great partners who supported us and who we still work with today, 10 years later. So it's incredible, like going up against these incumbents and then also having to go into international markets like Australia and Korea and China, like what was the decision-making process for a Canadian startup to do that, you know, at, at an early time, especially during COVID with supply chain disruptions and everything? The big international push for us is still ahead. I think that's probably the thing I'm most excited about. I think, you know, but honestly, Matt, like for us, it's kind of like, why wouldn't we go? Like our category is global. A lot of the trends that we see here are also true in Europe and Asia, really, you know, in a lot of markets around the world. And you know, we've never been shy about that. I think like, you know, the U.S. is probably about 85% of our business today. And we were really aggressive going into the U.S. We launched the U.S. I think four months after we launched in in Canada. Who are your first like customers in the U.S.? So we sell in a channel called Neighborhood Pet Specialty, which is, you know, specialty stores. There's probably 10,000 of them across North America. Um, basically pet stores that are not smaller than Petco or PetSmart is the simplest way to probably define it. We, uh, the reason I was kind of just laughing thinking about it you know we started by launching nationally across the u.s which i don't know i go back and forth on if i would like recommend that to anyone i think we i think there there are reasons it was a really good thing for us to do but but it also came with challenges and like some setbacks but so we were selling we our first customers were basically wholesale distributors i think we launched with four wholesale distributors across the u.s uh to service these small neighborhood pet stores um, across the country. So we launched October 2014. We launched Eastern Canada, Jan 2014, uh, 15. We launched Western Canada. And then March 2015, we basically launched the entire US. Um, so those were our first customers. And yeah, like, look, I think for us, it got us. So we've always leaned to more aggressive, go after markets, and I think, and invest against them, figure them out. Um, there are definitely cases where that's worked really well. There are cases where like it hasn't, and we've had to go back to the drawing board and, and figure them out. But net net, I mean, like our business now across the U.S. and Canada is is super, you know, is really strong in, in most regions. And so I think the international markets, like we we kind of view them as like fair game. I think there's a lot of examples of the Canadian brands, especially that have done really well um, in these other international markets, and it's really about you know, understanding them, understanding how they're the same, understanding how they're different and, and finding great people who could, who could help us build our business. I can only imagine how big a business it could be if you guys access like the Korean and China and Australian markets at large globally, as pets are becoming obviously the dominant loved ones in a lot of those regions. I got to ask, you know, 85% year over year growth since 2015, super consistent. You've been named one of Canada's fastest growing companies multiple times. How does Open Farm plan to maintain that growth while also staying true to sustainability goals? You know, I think there's a few themes for us on that. Like one is definitely planning, you know, because like I, you know, like I said, we make it harder for us. We put a lot of constraints 
on how we do things with our standards. And I think our, our consumers, I mean, that's how we build that trust. Like they, they expect us to deliver on those promises. Right. And so honestly, we're planning out on the supply chain side, we're planning out with like a five-year time horizon. We put as much rigor into that as we do on like the sales planning and, and kind of strategy front. And a lot of those programs on the supply side take years to kind of build. So it's really important that we're thinking three, four, five years ahead, like what are our supply needs going to be and, and where do we need to invest um, to make sure we have supply. And then the other piece, honestly, is like is great partnerships. Like I think we we have long-term partnerships with our suppliers. Those relationships are, are super important to us. Oftentimes, like the way we expand our supplies with like is by exp- like investing and expanding with with existing partners who we know well and and have done business with for a long time, and I think that's going to continue to be the case. And and then there's innovation. Like our brand, you know, has evolved so much in ten years, and I think it's like how do we continue to even raise our standard and 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 just evolve and kind of stay ahead of the curve. Like we kind of know people are going to co- like people like the things we were doing ten years ago, like other brands have caught up on already. And so it's really been like, what are the new things we've started doing in the last few years? That's really how are we staying ahead and how are we continuing to push the bar higher and higher? And I think that's what gets me excited. I think that's what gets our team excited. Like we're building a business, but I think honestly here, um, people are really dedicated to the impact we could have more broadly in, in our industry as well. What, what's the North Star metric? Like what's the overarching thing besides sales growth, obviously, that you are super passionate about that drives the entire organization our mission you know like our mission statement hasn't changed from day one it's it's do some good for pets and the planet and i think you know it's obviously super high level but i think like that's what drives us and i think the, the reason we're lucky is because it's not like something that we bolted on like an esv thing that we bolted on like that's like our dna that's really what we believe makes us different as a brand and so it's so linked to like the value we deliver our customers and I don't view it differently than our business goals. And I don't think anyone else here does. Like if we're not delivering on the, on our promise, like on our, on our mission, like we're just another brand and in a very competitive space, that's dangerous. Right. So what are the North stars for us now? I mean, I think to give you something, I could give you specific initiatives, you know, like we have zero waste to landfill by 25 is a goal that we're, you know, we might hit before, um, but that's one that's coming up in the next year. You know, we were the first pet food company to make to commit to science-based targets for reducing our carbon emissions, and it's a significant commitment. No other pet food companies made that yet. You know, you mentioned regenerative regenerative agriculture. That, that's one that we get super excited about. You know, we have a commitment now to advance regen practices across one million acres of farmland by 2030. And just to put that in perspective, I mean, today I think we. We source ingredients from about half a million acres and about 100,000 of those acres use regenerative practices. So we're looking at 10xing how much supply is coming from regen suppliers. Unilever, I think, has a 4 million acre commitment. Pepsi's a 7 million acre commitment. So I think you could see like we're, we're not fr- we're setting big goals for a company you know, of our size. And it's really like our goal is that everyone copies us. And I think when you say, what's our North Star, what gets us excited? I think that's what gets us the most excited. When we, when we do something and five years later, we see that industry leaders, these big CPGs are, are following that path and, and they're viewing that as a standard. I mean, that's how we know we're having major impact. Oh, yeah. It's also I mean, how we know we need to set a new bar. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's that's the game that we're in. I mean, Open Farm is literally revolutionizing the industry standards for the pet food manufacturing industry. That's crazy. A Canadian startup to do that on such a global scale is quite impressive. You know, obviously, you've caught the attention of incredible investors like General Atlantic. You've raised over $140 million in capital. What was that process like, given your background at BCG and private equity? How did you land on them? And how have they played a role in, you know, Open Farms growth since they became partners with you? And I think that experience at Clarivus was super valuable because I guess I got to see a bit of the other side of the table. And, you know, I'll say as minority investors there, you know, I, I think I really got to see what, like, what is a great partnership and, and what are you looking for in, in partners? And so that really helped us a lot in, in figuring out who do we want to work with and, and, you know, realizing that it's not really just about who could provide capital, but it's like, who could provide value that helps us grow the business? Who are partners that you want to have on your team when things are great, but also obviously when things are are more bumpy? And and I think we've been really lucky in that way. You know, GA, so they've been an investor now for 
for just under three years. You know, they've been they've been awesome partners. They've been great to work with, super supportive, value added in, in areas where where we've needed them, whether that's, you know, a lot in terms of the geographic expansion we're talking about, hiring, you know, some of our 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 debt financing that we've done lately. And we have, you know, we have multiple investors. Like Encore Consumer Capital was one of our first institutional investors. They came in in 2017 and are still still invested, still active. Howard Schultz, um, his family office came in in 2017. They've been huge supporters. I think from each of those, you know, one, we have a great dynamic, which I think we're fortunate to have where, you know, super supportive board, we get a ton, ton of value from them. And it's it's been, I think, very important to our success to have great partners in the business. I mean, it's incredible. A Canadian startup, Howard Schultz and General Atlantic, two of the biggest names and, you know, CPG and uh, retail and, and investing, you know, on your board and, and minority investors is a huge testament to the the role you guys are playing in changing this industry. I guess what were some of the challenges you faced, though, you know, on the journey from Open Farm in 2015 all the way through COVID, and how did you overcome them? Uh, I think I mean you mentioned it earlier. Probably the biggest challenges we've faced, you know, at least in the last few years, have really been really came in in uh, 2022 with uh, all the supply chain disruption from COVID. Like that was, you know, there's obviously all you know. It's been a series of challenges, but I think, you know, that was a very, that was a shock to the system. I think for all businesses that were, were in consumer products, retail, you know, you saw massive inflation, you saw a huge spike in demand that made just availability of, and forget the price you were paying for ingredients, but it was like, are we going to have the ingredients when we need them to make product? You know, obviously the ports and anything that was, that you were shipping overseas or, you know, we bring in a ton of. Uh, lamb and grass-fed beef from Australia and New Zealand, like lead times for that became very extended. So, I mean, that was a super challenging time. I mean, I think, how did we overcome it? I mean, one, obviously things got better as time passed, but I think, you know, our team did a phenomenal job. I think a lot of it goes to planning. I can't, on the supply chain side for us, that's the biggest thing. And it's like when you start to see things going wrong or when you feel like risk is higher, can you plan and build enough buffer into your your supply chain to to manage it? And and part of that is like you have the balance sheet that allows you to do that and hold more inventory, manage lead times better, manage delays better. And so I think it was it was a combination of being just you know well positioned financially that we were able to to invest, but also honestly you know that was a really challenging time for it. Like our team has extremely high standards, like on the operation side, like you know we hold ourselves to high standards in terms of like amazing product quality, but also having product in stock, having high fill rates to our customers. That was a battle because it was a time where it was really hard. And I think our team did just an amazing job kind of pushing through and, and doing the best we could through through what was a crazy time. Yeah. I mean, it's still lingering. I mean, for the pet food that we buy for our dog, I've noticed a lot of changes. One, they're out of stock often. I have to call like six stores to get it. And two, the, this, the kibble size has changed. You know, the bags have gotten smaller and the kibble's gotten smaller. The volumes have gone down. So it still seems like it's rippling through the supply chain for, for a lot of other providers out there. Is it still impacting you or are you guys back to where you guys were pre-COVID? Prices haven't come down. You know, and I think that's one thing that like everyone's watching. And, and you know, in some, I shouldn't. Overall, like ingredients, what we're seeing is some have come down, and some have more just everything is stabilized. Some have come down a lot, some have come down a little bit, and some are just kind of flat. And I think everyone was hoping they would come down substantially back to where they were pre twenty twenty two, and they might still. But then overall, we're seeing the supply chain functioning a lot better. You know, transportation, whether it's Ocean freight or domestically is is better. You know, manufacturing capacity is is better. Um, I think it probably depends on the category, but things things are a lot better than they were two years ago. That's for sure. I got I got to ask you though. We got to we got to get you some open farm kibble because our kibble size is the same. It hasn't changed. We'll <laughs> okay, then we're gonna, we'll, we'll get again. We'll talk about that. Um, okay, so. I want to switch gears a little bit. You've been an entrepreneur since 2015, building, uh, you know, digs and open farm and obviously, you know, helping out on Canada Pooch, but you've also started kind of advising and investing Canadian entrepreneurs. You know, what are you seeing in the Canadian entrepreneurial landscape? What's your take on the startup ecosystem here in Canada? And how are you trying to get people to think like you and Jacqueline to go bigger, 
to go more international and not just sort of get caught up in the stigma that we often hear about with Canadian startups? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is something that definitely I've become more passionate about, I'd say, in the last year where, yeah, we've been fortunate, like you said, we've been able to raise significant capital from from U.S. investors and from U.S. lenders over the last six, seven years, and it's been critical to us growing our business. And I just think there are so many companies here in Canada that don't get that access, whether it's on the equity side or the credit side. You know, I think I think the tax in the tech space, like where you live versus where I live, I think there's been like much more progress in the last decade, which is which is amazing. You know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts more on like where that's at and how much better it could, you know, where there's still room for improvement. But you know, where I where I live, it's like you know, you have a lot of disruptive companies in the consumer space and the retail space and and e-commerce and you know just non-tech industries i think it's on all fronts i think it's like how do you get more risk capital into our economy and i to me it should be from our our banks it should be from our pensions where we have huge pools of capital that we're not deploying in canada and i and i do think there you know i think you need the risk capital and then you need entrepreneurs who are willing to then take it and, and take risks and it's like how do we how do we just motivate them and, and kind of give them the support that they need to, to do it and be successful? No, I'll tell you what we're seeing. I mean, the pensions say that there's just not enough opportunities for them to write big enough checks into in Canada. There's not enough, you know, private equity, $250 million checks they can write. So they got to write co-investments alongside Blackstone and KKR. That's what the pensions would say. And from the bank's perspective, they don't make a lot of money from uh, technology uh you know, investing or lending early on. It's a very long-term bet. And they make too much money from all the other fees and wholesale commercial lending businesses uh, that are paying them now versus, you know, tech businesses that can't pay maybe and may never be able to pay for quite some time. And it's a lottery ticket for them and they don't want to be in necessarily that business. Now, that has changed a lot since SVB has obviously gone a little bit down uh, the line. You know, banks like RBC and and Scotia and CIBC Innovation Bank, and they are picking up the pace. But I do find your comment interesting because I know a lot of operators of traditional businesses, search fund friends that have also said the same thing about the banks not being as aggressive for their traditional businesses, which are EBITDA positive. So what do you think that's because of? Like, why did the American banks come and take on your risk and provide such great you know, credit versus the Canadians? Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, we were a, an SVB client, right? So we went through the whole process of kind of refinancing our credit facility this year. And yeah, honestly, it was surprising. Like with where our business is at today. Yeah, when we did our initial deal with SVB, I kind of under, I, I understood it because we were earlier stage and our profile was just different. Going through it this year, I wish I had a good answer for you. Like I, I think, you know, what, you, what I saw, is, honestly, is like I think the investment banks were... The reason we got a couple of good term sheets from Canadian banks, I think, but they still were not nearly as good as what we were seeing from the U.S. That's something I wish I had a good answer for you. It's it's like it is a bit, you know, that's what got me passionate about this. Is like there are probably there are so many businesses like ours and probably earlier stage that that could build great businesses if they had if they had access to capital, you know. And and in the U.S., what we see is they have it right. Like we've going through our processes, like, yeah, there's a huge ecosystem of like growth equity investors, private lenders, you know, the banks get it, obviously the regional banks, but then even the big banks have disruptive commerce teams, whether it's JP Morgan, City, you know, whatever. We just don't have anything that even comes close to to replicating that ecosystem in Canada today. Yeah, it's, it's a mixture of competition and I think education, uh, just really getting them caught up on what the new version of these businesses are, like yours, and what that risk reward appetite needs to look like. Uh, but it's happening and it's going to take a little bit more time. But you know, you recently went through it. Yeah, the only thing I'd say, Matt, on the pension thing, because I look, I think no one's expecting, I don't even know how many hundreds of billions of dollars of capital, like if we just aggregated our pensions together. I don't think anyone's arguing they need to be allocating 10% to Canadian private companies, but if they took 25 basis points, it would probably have like a material impact on our economy. And yeah, it, it wouldn't have that much of an impact on their returns, but hopefully, you know, if you believe that Canadians could build great companies, it should have a positive impact on their returns of anything, not negative. So I think the whole, che the whole check size arguments, like very micro to whatever PE team you're talking about, 
right? Where they're, they're tasked with deploying $250 million checks. I think it's more, if you look like overall at that pool of capital, how do we put more of that into Canada? It's a, you know, it's going to be a tiny allocation for them, but it could have a huge impact on job creation, innovation, and just, you know, having more Canadian businesses that are, you know, global in nature and, and doing great things in the world. So, right. I mean, let's just add up the numbers. If you really want to do back of the envelope math, you've got CPP with 575 billion. You've got case to Poe with, I think 300 and something. You've got all the other pensions across the provinces. Let's just call it a trillion dollars in pension money. All you need exactly 25 basis points, not even a percent and putting that towards Canadian businesses, Canadian, and they are doing that, you know, case to Poe has been doing a lot of that in Quebec. CPP outsources it a lot to to other firms to manage. So it's hard to see exactly where it's going, but agreed, it doesn't seem like even 1% would move the needle. So maybe that's why it's just not a, a big topic for them. Yeah. Now, look, I understand if, if you're looking at the returns of the fund, I think, I, and like where you could get returns, I, I get it. To me, it's a bit maybe a more of a political issue. Of like, it seems like a social issue. In our sure. economy here yeah. in Canada, exactly. a social and political issue. Well, let's move, let's move to the fun and lighthearted parted part of the conversation. You, you've got <laughs> two, you, you had three pets, you've got two pets now. What are their favorite open farm products? I have to ask, and I want to go and buy them after this. So what are they? <laughs> so yeah, we've got, we have two dogs, two seniors now. So they're, they've been with us basically since we started our business. Amazing. But uh, yeah, we, so our, what do we feed them? We feed them basically a hundred percent freeze dried raw. So we actually don't feed our dogs kibble anymore. We, we did for, for a long time. Um, freeze dried raw, it's, it's, I'll send you some, I mean, basically what it's 95% meat. You know, 5% organic veggies, fruits, some supplements. So high protein, you know, it's like they love it. I mean, they, it's extremely palatable, less processed. It's, it's an awesome product, and they've been thriving on it now for, for years. What product did you not think was going to work but really took off and flew off the shelf? You were a bit hesitant about. Great question. Yeah, you know, probably the biggest upside surprise in that way for us has been. Um, I'd say there's two. One is bone broth. Oh yeah. So you know, we sell a ton. Of, so we launched our bone broth probably four, four years ago. It's pro- it's one of our highest velocity products. You know, it's only six skews. Oh yeah. I mean, it has tons of benefits for for pets. I mean, it's high in collagen, which um, in terms of hip and joint, it's great. And you pour it on top of the kibble, like. Dogs love it, and we're finding more and more pet parents want to. They don't. They don't want to just put kibble in the bowl. They want to have it be a bit more, you know, fun for their pets. They want their pets to enjoy it, and they want to add more nutrition. And so, a lot of those toppers we're seeing really, uh, really do well. And I think it's kind of a win-win. It's obviously more products for us, but it's also better nutrition for for pets as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you how many SKUs do you have now? Uh, so we're about 185 SKUs. Okay. And you want to keep them at a certain limit? We are probably in eight categories now. So kibble's our biggest category. And I think we view that as like everyone feeds kibble. And like a lot of kibble is not very <laughs> it's not very good, right? So I think having a, a premium, like great quality kibble is really important. It brings people into our brand. It gives them an option for people who want to feed that way to still get great nutrition and have, have products they can really trust and feel good about. Um, but we've expanded that to, you know, freeze dried, like I mentioned to you. Um, we have a gently cooked product, which is actually sous vide, human grade. It's it's probably our most high end product. We have obviously treats, we have supplements, we have so it's a range of categories. It's not like we have two hundred kibble skews. But I think for us, it's like we're only adding products where we think there's a real real need, and that's why we've gone more broad versus having just like more and more kibble. It's like where can we actually solve a problem for for pet parents and where could we add value? So we're, we're going to have more SKUs, but it's going to be in a thoughtful way, not just in the interest of having more and more products. I mean, the industry is massive. You said 50 billion. Uh, there's you know insurance, there's uh, telemedicine, obviously everything you're doing in the you know supply industry. What is one surprising fact about the pet food industry that most people don't know about? Yeah, I think most surprising to us as we d- dove into it at the beginning, and I think still is like a new stat for most, like 50 billion plus, it's obviously a huge category, but even from an impact perspective, you know, 25% of all meat raised in the US goes into pet food. Wow. I think with a company that has a mission like ours, like, you know, it's actually a huge 
agricultural and kind of environmental impact from our industry. And I, again, I, you know, for us, a lot comes back to that. Like, how are we driving improvement, driving change, driving conversation about how we can make things better in that way? That's amazing. So do you think like the um, beyond the meats of the world will ever infiltrate the uh, traditional pet food industry and remove some of that traditional meat supplements? We've spent a lot of time kind of in that space. And I think they're great. Yeah, you know, they're interesting companies that are doing some exciting things there. And, you know, I think it's it's a bit farther out. And I think, you know, our focus... Yet to be proven. Yet to be proven. And, you know, for us, we, you know, we think there's a lot we could be doing within our existing supply chain and our, as an industry to drive significant improvement. And that, that's really where, where we're focused because we think it's like clear and present right now. And, you know, it's going to continue to be important even as those kind of emerging technologies come into play. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Before we jump into our fast favorites, I've got to ask what's next on the horizon for you personally, any new ventures or projects you can share with our audience? Yeah, no, well, look, and I know we were on some more lighthearted topics, right? To, to, cause I was thinking about, oh, what do I say to this one? But, you know, honestly, I think the last month for, for us, a lot of our work, we're, we're so on the business side, the answer is no. Like we're so focused on open farm on, you know, there's so much for us to do. You know, I would say the last month for us since, um, the Hamas attacks in Israel and, and the, the ongoing conflict now, you know, well, we've been, you know, it's obviously been shocking. I think for us, seeing a lot of the reactions in Canada and kind of anti-Semitic events has been surprising you know, and, and just, you know, really sad. And we're action-oriented people. We're kind of, obviously, we're, we're doers. When we see an opportunity, we go for it. And I think for us, you know, we've been really trying to invest time, energy, resources, and what are we doing to raise awareness of anti-Semitism here? And what are we actually... How are we dispelling myths? How are we at least bringing some education, awareness, dialogue around that topic? There's a lot of things happening around the world, a lot of opinions, all that. But I think for us, at the you know where we think we could have a lot of impact is here in Canada, making sure this is a place where everybody feels comfortable, whether Jewish, Muslim, other other uh, nationalities, obviously. And I think that's something we're putting more and more time and energy against. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you and Jacqueline have been incredible leaders in the Canadian entrepreneurial space, but also in the community and also doing everything you can to make this a better place and a better country for all entrepreneurs and, and participants. So thank you for that. Before we finish up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Yeah, so for me, honestly, I don't really, I listen to some business podcasts, but for me, it's really like winding down. I'd say Probably the Ringer NBA show or Bill Simmons podcast, but something more related to sports and business. Nice. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Axios. It's still my kind of daily update, I'd say. You've been in Axios, haven't you? Haven't you been in it? Yeah, we got a little mention. Oh, we got a little mention bad. once. Once. <laughs> Next is your favorite tech gadget? I'm a huge barbecue guy. So actually my Traeger, Traeger Timberline, I got this summer, app enabled and all that. That's been a, I a just, great- just bought one for my brother for his 50th birthday, the Timberline 885. Amazing. I'm very excited for I him to it. use it. Yeah, he'll love it. Uh, if you have any good recipes, please send them over. Next is your favorite new trend. Um, this will tell you something about me. I asked, she asked Jacqueline, like, what's my favorite new trend? And she said, return to work. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, that's a big one. But um, that's a big one. Yeah, I, I recently... Just started uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which I think oh, is wow. a new trend. That's but huge. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a, a be- very beginner, but you are you going to take on uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk after that? I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. I'm starting with like private lessons. Okay, see how, you know, I can't be fighting anybody. All right. Next <laughs> is your favorite book or Jacqueline's favorite book? Every night is pizza night. That's what I read <laughs> with my daughter, my three year old daughter, oh, every okay. night now. So awesome. I'll see that one. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. So this is one actually a high school basketball basketball coach of mine named Scotty Rosansky yelled at us repeatedly while we were practicing. But I think it's honestly been one that I remembered for you know that I've applied is just no regrets. And I think, you know, you see something and just go for it. And the worst thing that could happen is thinking about, oh, I should have done that five years ago or I should have made a different decision. So no regrets. That's that's the one. Short and sweet. Perfect. I love it. Well, Thanks for joining us in the tank today with co-founder and CEO of Open Farm, Isaac Langleben. Thanks, Matt. 
Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.